The year was 1777. George Washington was head of the Continental Army, if you could call it an army at the time. It was really a collection of farmers who wanted freedom. He had just had the last battle with the well-trained troops of England, the Redcoats, in Philadelphia, and retreated for the winter in Valley Forge. He had about 12,000 men, between 11 and 12. Many didn't even have shoes or socks or marching barefoot. Before the winter was over, it's estimated that 2,500 men died from the cold, malnutrition, so that you and I could have the freedom we have today. Freedom comes at a cost, whether it's freedom of a nation, freedom from sin. Interestingly, there is a story that gets recounted, was first recorded in a diary by a Presbyterian minister. I'd like to read it to you. I knew personally the celebrated Quaker Potts who saw General Washington alone in the woods in prayer. I got it from himself, myself. Weems mentioned it in his history of Washington, but I got it from the man himself, so it's got to be true, right? And it was about a quarter of a mile from the place where we were riding. As it happened, there said he, he laid the army of Washington. It was most distressing time of the war, and all were giving up the ship, but for the great and good man. In the woods, pointing to a close view, I heard a plaintive sound as a man in prayer. I tied my horse to the sapling and went quietly into the woods. And to my astonishment, I saw George Washington on his knees alone. With his sword on one side and his cocked hat in the other, he was praying to God of the armies, beseeching to interpose with his divine aid. As it was yet in Christus, in the cause of the country and humanity of the world. Such a prayer I never heard from the lips of man. I left alone him in prayer. I went home and told my wife I saw a sight and heard today what I never saw and heard before. And just related to her what I had seen and heard and observed. We never thought a man could be a soldier and a Christian. But if there is one, it is Washington. She was also astounded. We thought it was the cause of God and America would prevail. He then went on with his right hand and turned, <coughs> and I turned about. Powerful and stirring story, is it not? Later on, it gets immortalized in a beautiful painting showing Washington exactly as it's described. Wonderful, is it not? Except a few years later, a man going through town wanted to meet this Potts. And he began to inquire. And he asked one, and he asked another, and another, and another. And the closest anybody could come was, well, there was one Quaker family, had a farm about five miles away, but the name wasn't Potts. Legend? Myth? Interestingly enough, 
the Presbyterian minister who recounted the story's name was Reverend Nathaniel Randolph Snowden. I don't know if he's related. See, the problem that we have as human beings that, like every culture, we have this tendency that we want to make people in our history greater than what they really were. Every culture is guilty of it. Every nation is guilty of it. Every community is guilty of it. Whether it's sports, whether it's a nation, does not matter. The same is true with the character we're talking about today. They want to make him, the, the people of Israel, want to make him greater than life itself. <coughs> Indeed, there are aspects of his life that we look at and know in our hearts that we could never have the faith that he, Abraham, exhibited. We see that carried over into the New Testament in Luke chapter 16, when Luke, a Greek physician, repeats a parable that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. Abraham had a servant named Eleazar. The Greek form of the Eleazar happens to be Lazarus. And they created and they intermingled Greek mythology and Greek morality tales to make them feel good. Oh, when a person dies, they go to the bosom of Abraham. God is left out of the picture. And we have people in the Christian faith today that want to make it something greater. There are a host of other folklore surrounding Abraham. One has that his father, Terah, was a man who sold idols. Others say, no, it wasn't his father, but his brother. And there are various stories and other folklore, some of telling of, of how he came out. But we have from scriptures what we need. We are starting today a series in which we're calling the Overcomers. We're taking a look at five men from the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, and David. Every one of them in Hebrew culture is made to look grander than what they are. And in one sense, they were. Because in every one of those instances, we see the grandeur of who? Christ. Interestingly enough, by his stripes, we are healed. Who is the source of living water? Take those rods. Put some stripes on them. May the lambs then go out and be strong and produce other lambs. The gospel message I would submit to you can be found everywhere in scriptures if we just but have the eyes. When we look at these men, we have to understand some things. Every one of them, down to the core, had character flaws. We share that in common with them. Every one of them had to face great trials in their faith. And their faith did not come overnight. 
each man ultimately found that they had to humble themselves to the Lord. Examples for you and I in our walk. Jeremiah talks about it being the time of Jacob's trouble when we have to wrestle with our sinful nature and wrestle with Christ so that he can give us the ultimate victory. But today we're going to look at the life of Abraham. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to talk and look at the famous story that everybody knows. But rather I want us to look at the journey that brought Abraham to that point, which is why I call today's sermon a journey from faith to faith. Now, when Jesus was sitting down with Nicodemus, and if you will, turn with me to our Bibles, we're going to go to chapter 12. We're going to walk through some of these stories. When Jesus was sitting down with Nicodemus, remember the man who came at night, Jesus goes through a series of conversations and said, talks about how a man must be born again. And Nicodemus turns around and thought, how can a man go into his mother's womb and come out again? But Jesus was talking about not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth, giving us one of the keys to unlocking scriptures. He also talked about how he himself, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the son of man be. So that there are stories preserved for us in scriptures that actually point to and reveal the plan of salvation. When we look at the life of Abraham and we look at the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis actually is a foundation in terms of which all the rest of the Bible is built upon. Sin enters into the world. Abraham goes sacrifice your son, the solution to the sin, and ultimately Joseph goes ahead to prepare a place for his brothers as Jesus goes ahead to prepare a place. Consider these facts. Abraham is called out of the land of Ur, land of the Chaldeans. Any Bible scholars out there? Where is the land of the Chaldeans? <clears throat> where did they build, try to build a tower? Babel. Babylon. Is there a message for us today to the Christian faith, to God's people to come out of Babylon? He takes a detour, doesn't go directly to the promised land. <coughs> he goes to Haran, and then after his father dies, he then goes to the promised land. But something happens when he's in the promised land. A famine hits, and where does he go? He goes to Egypt. And, and of course, Sarah, we're described this as we're not told anything about what Abraham looks like, but we're told that Sarah was what? Fair, beautiful, so much that he feared for his life that Pharaoh, who had a penchant for women, would take him and stuff. And so he goes in and he, by the way, how many people believe, and don't raise your hand, how many people believe that Abraham lied when he said that it's his sister? He actually did not lie, but he didn't tell all the truth. What I find fascinating is I hear Christian phase and I hear pastors stand up and sit back and talk about the law didn't exist until Mount Sinai. And out of their next word, they turn around and they sit back and say, but Abraham lied. And they can't even see their own contradiction. And Abraham goes in and what happens to Pharaoh? Pharaoh is struck with boils and pestilence and all the people. And Abraham 
who was not honest with everything, <coughs> God who intercedes, does he kick him out? Yes, he does. But what does he do? He blesses Abraham. Wait a minute. Abraham did not. He put, he put this man in danger of sinning against God, and he turns around and gets blessed. Did not the same thing happen to the Israelite people? Does not the same thing happen to you and I? We don't deserve it, but we still come out of Egypt blessed. How about this one? Those of you who are at Sabbath school, not a good idea to ask the preacher to preach, to teach Sabbath school, because unfortunately some things bleed over. Three angels walk into the camp of Abraham. Let me repeat. Three angels walk into the camp of Abraham. Do we have any story of three angels? In Revelation, three angels' message. One of those angels happened to be who? Jesus, God. Jesus is actually the one that stayed behind, because remember, only two angels went in. Jesus turns around and he tells Abraham, he says, I'm not going to hide from you <coughs> what the Lord is about to do. We came down to investigate to see if the accusations against Sodom are true. Is there not in scriptures about an investigative judgment going on? In the heavenly courts. But oh, you Adventists, you get it wrong. Abraham then has an encounter, too, with Melchizedek, king of the Most High, high priest, king of righteousness. Who is our righteousness? Jesus. And he breaks bread and has wine. Do we see patterns beginning to emerge? That why when, when Jesus talked about to Nicodemus that you should know a man must be born again. <coughs> we should know these things. That when he talks about with the men on the road to Emmaus, starting with Moses, he begins to expound all the things in Scripture that they're talking about. What a Bible study they must have had. I can't imagine Jesus covering everything in that short a period of time. Quite frankly, because I see Jesus everywhere as, as our eyes begin to open to these stories. Even to the point where one of the sacrifices that he's told to give is he's told to take five different types of animals, two different types of birds, to cut them in half and lay them down. And when he has that, he sees the birds of prey come down. And he has this vision and he's horrified. Jesus, later talking to, the, to his descendants, talking to them and sitting back and saying, Moses, look forward to my day. In Scripture, as birds of prey symbolize demons. And I can just picture on the cross Satan and the fallen angels mocking him. Come down and save yourself. Then we have the famous story of Ishmael and Isaac. He's given a promise that through him he's going to be a father of a great nation, but there was a problem could not have children. 
And even though the Lord promised him that it would be one of his own, because he even says, is Eleazar going to be? And I thought it's interesting. And I don't have the answer to it. He never thinks of Lot, his nephew, as being his heir. But he does think of Eleazar, his servant, being an heir. And the Lord says, no, it'll be one for his own loins. And so he waits and he waits and he waits. And it seems that the Lord seems to be tearing a little bit. And so he decides that, well, not that I've ever done this. Not that you've ever been guilty of this. But Abraham decided to help God out. Let me help you. And so in that story of Ishmael and Isaac, Paul later on recounts and compares the Old and the New Covenant. One, the Old Covenant being Ishmael, and two, the New Covenant being Isaac, one by promise, one by human effort. If you walk away with anything in understanding, at Mount Sinai there was a covenant made. We talked about this. What was the problem with the covenant? Was the terms of the covenant that God laid out? Or was it the people? We will do everything the Lord says. Human effort. We don't need you, God. We can do it on our own. And so we see in Ishmael and Isaac, there are other stories too, of course. He sends Eleazar to go find a bride for his son. It is not Jesus, the bridegroom. How the Old Testament reeks of Jesus everywhere. And yet there are churches that sit back and say, we don't need the Old Testament. So what of Abraham? There's some character things that I think we should learn from when we look at Abraham. Jesus <clears throat> taught us and said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Abraham lived that. See, in, we, we, we tend to think of the let your yes be yes and no be no, and one of the first discoveries that, that I had as a baby Christian was is that it actually is okay to say no. It actually is okay to say no. No, I'm sorry, I can't participate in ten different ministries. I can't do them all right. Let me do one. It's okay to say no. When it comes to faith, things of sin, we say no. But other things, we have balance to. But there's another aspect as we grow in that, is, is be decisive. Don't be double-minded. When Lot goes his own way and goes off to Sodom, and then he's carried away, one of his men escapes and comes to, to, to Abraham and lets him know what happened. And what did Abraham sit back and say? Well, you didn't listen to me. You wanted to do things your own way. You got it, right? Just washed his hands. He goes and he gathers how many? 318 of his servants, men, to go rescue. And I looked it up on the map and where they believe he had to go rescue Lot, where he was taken. And that journey was not five miles, was not 20 miles, was not even 50 miles. It was over 150 miles they had to march to go rescue. 
Why did Abraham go? He's kin. See, when we look at covenants and when we've talked about covenants, the Bible is a book about covenants. It's about relationships. It's about binding relationships. Some covenants we enter into verbally as a verbal agreement. There are other covenants that just happen simply because they are. When a parent and a child get into a relationship, they enter into a covenant relationship. The child doesn't sit back and say, hey, mom, I want to enter into a covenant with you. The mom doesn't sit back and think, but is there a covenant? Yes, there is. There is an expectation Flesh and blood. See, in case of Lot, Lot's father passed away. Abraham being the eldest, it was his responsibility as the elder of the family to take responsibility for raising Lot. That's why Lot goes with him. Like a son. That's my son that you have taken. Not my nephew. That's my son. And I will defend my own. And when he comes back, what does he do? Son, have you learned your lesson? Come on, come back with me. Is that what he did? No. He allowed Lot to go his own way. And ultimately, what Lot did he do? He goes back to Sodom. And when he comes back with that and delivers, delivers Lot, what does the king of Salem want, or excuse me, the king of Sodom want to do? He wants to give Abraham. <coughs> A reward. And what did Abraham do with it? Hey, yeah, give it to me. I deserve it. We marched. We used our own provisions. We, we walked away from our fields. We were away from house and family and, and everything. Yeah, give me it. Did he deserve it? Would it have been wrong for him to take it? In his eyes, I submit, it would have been wrong. Because he didn't go to rescue Lot for a reward. He did it simply because it was the right thing to do. And I believe intrinsically he understood that he had the victory not because of his own might, not because of his own power. I believe at this point, because God has led him out of, of Babylon, has led him the whole way. He goes to Egypt. He's come back. God has shown his faithfulness to him. Even when he failed, he knew he could trust God, and he knows intrinsically that the victory was not through him and his effort, but through God's. I love the relationship between Lot and Abraham. There's lessons for everyone. There's lessons for the young people in our church. There's lessons for us older people in the church. Every Christian church has a problem. I don't care about denomination, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Seventh-day Adventist, or what any number of 40,000 or so different denominations that are out there. Every one of them have a problem. We can't keep our youth in the church. Why? Maybe because it's, we have allowed the world to come in to the church that there isn't enough to distinguish us. About a dozen years ago in Dallas, there is a mega church down there, and a reporter decided to do a range and decided to do a survey, and he discovered something that absolutely fascinated him. Over 40,000 members in his church, and he found that alcoholism, addictions to pornography, addictions to drugs, <clears throat> 
you just go through the gamut, was no different. No different from those in the church, from those in out of the church. Yeah, bring me to church. See, we have allowed Christianity, we have allowed the world in to the point where we don't get it. You know, biblically, if you, if you were to sit back, and, you know, and I go through it now at work, they always put us through these uh, uh, training seminars in terms of leadership and management because we got to learn how to deal with the next generation coming behind us. And, and we're, we, we give labels to these generations. Now we're dealing with what's referred to as the millennials. And we're told that millennials have this whole different perspective of everything and how we, as the older people, have to adjust in all of that. And I'm sitting back and thinking, it's like, really? That's the solution. I have to change to accommodate them. You know, biblically, there's only four stages. I think scientists and, and physicists, or not physicists, but psychiatrists, have broken down to the point where I think they divided like the maturity of a human being going from a child to, to an adult into something like ten different stages. You know, biblically, there's only four. You're an infant. You're a child. At the age of 12, you're out of manhood. And you know what the fourth is? You're an elder. Anyone older than you is your elder, is someone you're supposed to respect. Do we demand that from our children? I can remember growing up if I ever disrespected someone. I didn't sit down for a while. And yes, you can surmise that I was guilty of that. And yet we tolerated. And you young people, do you not have respect for the older people? For the trials that we have gone through? The fact that we made it this far in life? We have young children and, and our young adults want to have what, what took us a lifetime to, to build with our home, and we have people who come out of college and in your young years, by the time they're 30, they expect not only to have what we had, it took a lifetime, but they want more. They're not satisfied. And oh, mom and dad, you're old fuddy-duddies. Is there something to be learned? Could Lot have learned from Abraham if he'd have stuck around? I believe he did learn a few things. There's a story that until I understood the power of covenants, and the types of covenants that, that, are, that are expected, there is a story surrounding Lot. Remember when the three angels, when the two angels came into town, into Sodom. Remember what the story on how it happened. And the two angels came in and he, he invites them and says, no, it's not safe to be in the streets. Come to my home. And so he brings them under his home. And then this is where the story really gets messed up. Can I, can I be honest? The story story's kind of messed up. Because what happens? You got the men, all of them turn out, and hey, we want to have our way with 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 those two men that came in, and and Lot does something, and I'm sorry, this is a messed up story. He turns around and says, "No, take my daughters." I'm sorry, that's messed up. I have a stepdaughter. I can't imagine myself doing that with my stepdaughter, alone, someone who came from my own flesh and blood. That's a messed up story. Thank you. But yet, Lot was 1,000 in the right in the eyes of God. 
even to this day, in the culture in the Middle East, there is an expectation of what scholars have labeled threshold covenants. It's one of those covenants that you don't necessarily enter into by formal agreement. It simply is there. Then when a person comes under your home, under your wings, you will protect them with your life and lay your own life down. There was a story a movie made just a few years ago about a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan. Major fight with the Taliban. Many lost their lives. He was injured. And an Afghanistan villager took him in, brought him under his house, brought him into his home. And the Taliban came. Not only did he pick up weapons to defend this foreigner in his nation, but the entire village picked up arms to defend him. There are still places in the world that go by that covenant. And what do we learn from that? Jesus says, you are mine. And no one is going to take me from me. You come under my wings, under my protection. You are mine. Isn't it wonderful to see Jesus everywhere in scriptures? I have another question about the story of Sodom. We know that Abraham, as he's going, he realizes that God, Jesus, reveals to him what he's about to do. And so Abraham does something that is mind-blowing. I would have never thought about this. Even after reading the story, I would never think of doing this. Negotiate with God. Imagine having a relationship with God so close that you can feel comfortable with getting into a negotiation with him. Keep in mind, now I don't know about your Bible, but the beginning of the story of Abraham begins on page 10. That's about, uh, let's see if I can figure this out, about this much of the Bible. My Bible has like 1,231 pages, 10 pages of what he had, and yet his relationship with God was such that he could feel comfortable negotiating with God. If you will find but 10 righteous, if he goes through and whole thing, if you find 50 righteous, will you do? What about 45? Lord, don't be angry with me. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And I have pondered over this. And it's interesting. I love comparing because you look at a similar story where Moses interceded for the people of Israel and did the same thing. He says, Lord, spare them. Remember when, when Abraham does this, he sits back and says, should it be that you, a just Lord, would, would, would do this thing, that you would destroy the righteous with the wicked? And I have struggled with understanding why it is that God went and still destroyed Sodom. And yet, when Moses intercedes, he does what? 
And so I have a question for you, two questions actually, in terms of our understanding of the character of God. Do we see God's mercy and justice being separate and different? Or do we see them being one and the same? When Jesus destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, was he just? Here's the question, the trick. Was he merciful? Ah, we got some mature people here. How was he merciful? I got this from my son-in-law. I wasn't prepared for it, but fortunately the Lord gave me an answer very quickly because I had had something totally similar question, but on a com completely different story. And I asked him this question. I said, because here's his problem. He says, I don't have a problem with the adults being killed. They're old enough. They made their own decision. They made their own bed. I get that. I don't have a problem. He says, but what about the children? What about them? And I said, you know, that's a great question because I've pondered that and I've pondered that about other stories. And I asked him this question. I said, let me ask you this question. First of all, at what age do you determine you're going to cut off and say, I'm not going to destroy them? Let's say God doesn't destroy the children. What's your cutoff age? Second of all, once you determine the cutoff age, whether it's three, whether it's five, or it's ten, or we'll take the age of adulthood, accountability, twelve, who's going to raise all of them? Keeping in mind how perverted they were and how they may have been raised and abused, we get, even the world gets upset today about child abuse. Even an atheist will be infuriated by that. I've done prison ministry in various places, and I've been told that the one who is in greatest danger is a child abuser when they're in prison. Because even the other prisoners hate them. So at what point do you cut it off? Who raises them? And imagine, if you will, the child gets raised, somebody takes them under, someone takes them upon a turn, and somewhere along the line, they're going to find out that that's not the real mommy and daddy. And they're going to ask, what happened to my mommy and daddy? Well, let me take you over here. See that place over there that's now just burning sulfur? Your mommy and daddy were over there, but they were so evil that God had to destroy them. But that was my mommy and daddy. So was God merciful. I submit he was. See, I submit the problem that we have, even as Christians, even if we can fall into it, even as Adventists, to fail to understand that everything God does, that justice and mercy are two sides of the exact same coin. They are not separate and distinct. This is what's being taught in Christianity as a whole. The God of the Old Testament was all about justice. You did wrong, I'm going to stomp on you. Joe violated the law, and boom! And the New Testament is all about love. Oh, Jesus forgives everything. Except the Apostle Paul turned around and said that if I've done anything deserving of death, let it be so. <gasps> I thought we're supposed to forgive. 
And when Jesus talks with the woman with adultery and he tells her, he says, neither do I condemn you, we have we look at this story and we fail to grasp some of the deeper things. And I think it's one of those things that as we get older and we gain more life experience, that we get able to look at those stories a little bit better. Because Jesus says, go and sin no more. Here's what Jesus does not do. Jesus doesn't ask you and say, hey, uh, did you grow up in an abusive home? Did your mommy or daddy do something? Maybe your brother? See, in God's eyes, we have to understand Satan has a thousand, ten thousand ways, a hundred thousand ways to get us to sin. There's only one solution for sin. God makes it real easy for us. That solution is Jesus Christ. Him crucified. God willing to give and sacrifice of himself to save us. See, that's what I look at when I go to the Old Testament and I look at these stories. I didn't always view them that way. It's been a journey for me to be able to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And it should be a journey for you to see Jesus in the Old Testament, to see him everywhere in scriptures, to see the love that God has for you and he has for me. See, the issue with Abraham, when he interceded, and I don't know if you caught this, it's the same issue when he decided to take matters into his own hands to help God. It's the identical issue. He said, if there are ten righteous men, who was he appealing his righteousness to? There's no righteousness in us. Do you not get that? And see, when Moses interceded, he didn't sit back and say, hey, they're righteous. He said, they deserve to die. But because of your righteousness, do you see the difference? Do you grasp that difference? Do you hold on to it with all your might? That that is what it's about. It's not about my righteousness. It's not about your righteousness. It's about him. Next week, in next week's Sabbath school lesson, Jeremiah, he associates healing with salvation. God knows we were put into a sinful world, but he loves us so much, he says, I'm going to rescue you. I am going to heal you. It doesn't matter what your issue is. There isn't a sin that you and I could commit. There isn't anything that we can get. There isn't anything that we can get ourselves caught into that hasn't already been dealt with in the body. And the solution, no matter what story it is, the solution always comes out the same. Believe in Jesus. That's the story of Abraham. That is how Abraham, how God led Abraham, step by step, come out of her, my people, but it was a journey from faith to faith. The same journey he traveled, the same journey the Israelites traveled. It's the same journey that every human being who wants to spend eternity with him travels.